Good morning, everybody. It really is uh, great to be together with you this morning. It's interesting that Pastor Nick has already encouraged us to share some of our favorite things about the fall because autumn in Northeast Ohio is absolutely my favorite time of the year. It's my favorite. I love the way in which the leaves begin to turn these brilliant, vibrant colors of gold and orange and red. I love the bite that is in the air. It may may be a little too strong over the last couple of days, but I love the bite that's in the air because what it allows me to do is to, to go with my favorite clothing combination of all time, shorts and a hooded sweatshirt. Yes, somebody else. Thank you, Greg. Just fantastic. College football, high school football are in full swing, and pumpkin spice lattes, oh, how I love them, are available at every coffee shop in town. But there is one more reason that my family and I love fall. I suppose it's a bit of a confession, but I'm willing to go there with you this morning. One of the other reasons that we love the fall is because it is the season for Frankenberry cereal. That's right. It's the season when Frank and his friends, Boo Berry and Count Chocula, grace the shelves of our grocery stores with their very presence. Frankenberry cereal. Now, of course, Frankenberry cereal was inspired by the tale of Frankenstein's monster. And I'm certainly not an expert in Frankenstein lore. However, what I do know to be true in most cases, the way that the story is told is that the creature does not come to life. In fact, he cannot come to life apart from a source of great external power. So, for example, in the old 30s movie, uh, I think the actor was Boris Karloff, who played the Frankenstein monster. I'm getting some heads nodding. So Boris Karloff comes to life in that movie by the power of a lightning storm. And apart from the power of that storm, the creature cannot come to life. Now, the church is no monster. That's one thing. But we do have one thing in common with our our buddy Frank here. And that's that the church cannot come to life apart from a source of great and external power. Can't do it. The church cannot bring itself to life. It needs a power source. So, what is it? What is the great source of power that brings the church to life? For some of us, it might be our really excellent ministry programs here at Old North. And they are excellent, I think. Or maybe our beautiful facility, or our staff, or our weekend worship gatherings. I wonder how you would answer the question. If a friend came up to you tomorrow as you were getting coffee uh, at the office and said, you know, what is it really that makes Old North such a, a vibrant, thriving, living congregation? How would you answer that question? The answer, as we will see this morning, is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And that is that the church only comes to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. In his great power, the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, is the one who actually brings the church to life And he sustains the church in its life. But a good natural question after that would be, 
what does it really look like to be a church that's empowered by the Spirit? How do we recognize his work among us? How, if at all, can we participate in what the Spirit is powerfully doing to breathe and to bring life into our church? What difference does it make in the way that I'm going to wake up and live my life on Monday morning? These are the questions that we're going to be getting after this morning. So I think it's appropriate that we pray, uh, that we ask for God's help in the task. So would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful this morning for the present power of the Spirit among us, even today, even in this moment. We are thankful that he's working to give life to the church. So help us to have eyes to see that. Help us to be eager to participate in this work and glad to submit and depend fully upon his power to sustain the life of our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Nathan has already read that passage for us in its entirety, so you have the whole scope, the whole context. We're looking at Peter's inaugural sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. If you need a Bible, uh, please feel free to grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you. You can find our passage on page 910 of that Bible. We would love for you to follow along and engage with the scriptures. How is it that the Holy Spirit brings the church to life? What is so powerful about what he does? How can we connect into that? Let's make a few observations from Peter's sermon to, to figure those questions out together. One of the first things that we will see about Peter's sermon is that the Spirit powerfully brings about radical personal change. As a clear evidence of his power in bringing life to the church, the Spirit generates authentic and radical change in us. Verse 14, the passage opens, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, in this short little verse is a strong implication that the Spirit powerfully brings about radical change in Peter's life. Now, rewind with me, if you would, just 50 days in Peter's life. You might remember that just a few weeks earlier, the Apostle Peter, who now stands lifting his voice before a crowd of people to convince them about the gospel, had balked at the idea of even being associated with Jesus. You might remember the story. He, he adamantly, strongly denied the Lord three times. This is quite a different version of Peter, is it not? This is a radical change in his posture. Something happened to him. What happened? Well, the beginning part of Acts chapter 2 happened, where like a mighty rushing wind, the Spirit filled the disciples. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Radical personal change. Friends, the life and the power of the church is not built on a series of New Year's resolutions or well-meaning self-help programs or turning over a few new leaves. We, we need to be changed much beyond that. We need radical personal change, change that can only come about by the power of the Spirit as he regenerates our hearts. That is his initial work in bringing our hearts to life as we place our trust in Jesus Christ. He does it through his work of sanctification. That is his progressive and ongoing work 
in molding us and shaping us and chiseling us into the image of Jesus. In a helpful little book called You Can Change, the author quotes Puritan John Owen as saying, regeneration produces an inward miraculous change of heart. Our minds now have a new, saving, supernatural light that enables them to act spiritually. In other words, regeneration, sanctification, all of these works of the Holy Spirit that bring about radical change truly come from him and from his power. We're looking this morning at Peter's inaugural sermon. Well, at a different inaugural sermon, at a a different church many weeks ago, a young and wise senior pastor who used to pastor in Massachusetts, who's married to a girl named Amy, who has a voluptuous set of brown hair named Nick Gatsky, looked at this congregation and made the bombastic statement that Old North Church is going to change. How, I wonder. The answer is because God is going to change you. So the question is, how has God changed you in the last two months since hearing that sermon? Do you find yourself eagerly and actively submitting to the Spirit's power to bring about substantive change in your life? When your spouse, I'm sure, unknowingly, pushes all of your favorite buttons... Do you respond in the same unhelpful and even sinful way that you have for the last 20 years? Do you find yourself continuing to come every week to experience the life of this church only to exit the the pew with no affection for Jesus, no eagerness to serve him? I think it's time for us to, to stop burying our heads in the sand of familiarity to stop buying the lie that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and it's time for us to really believe with a deep sense of conviction that the Spirit wants to change us, and He can, and we have to buy into the fact that we must participate, we must cooperate with Him as He works to shape and mold us into the image of Jesus. Because in changing us, we see the Spirit breathing life into our church. It's actually not the only thing that's happening, though, here in Acts chapter 2. It's not the only way that the Spirit brings life to the church. If we keep reading, we will see that the Spirit also powerfully fulfills the promise of God's abiding presence. The coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of God's promise to abide with his people for the purpose of gospel ministry. Check it out as Peter points his audience as we look today to the prophet Joel. Verse 17. It says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men see visions. Your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Like a torrential downpour in April here in Canfield, God makes a promise to pour out his spirit on who? On all flesh, and they will prophesy. 
what is that all about? To fully appreciate what's happening here, we've actually got to look back a bit and understand the work and particularly the scope of the Spirit's work in the days when Joel wrote his prophecy. Now, it's true that the Spirit was active among the people of God, among the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So, for example, we'd read in places like the book of Judges where the Spirit would come upon a judge for a particular time and task. However, even in those situations, even in those scenarios, they were both limited and temporary. So not all of God's people had this kind of experience with the Holy Spirit, and those that did only experienced it for a short period of time. Well, the prophet Joel foretold of a day when all of that would change. And so what Peter is explaining to his audience here when they asked him the question earlier, what in the world does all this mean? He said, what you are seeing here is not a bunch of guys who started tailgating too early. That's not what you're seeing. What you're seeing here is the actual fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, God's promise to pour out his spirit on all types of people, men and women, old men, young men. Old men don't dream dreams, do they? Your, your average run-of-the-mill Christian can't possibly be filled with enough of the Spirit to proclaim God's word and the word of the gospel, can they? Now they can, Peter says. Now they can. Because no longer would the power of the Spirit rest on only a few. No longer would he only come and empower and equip the prophets or the priests or the kings for ministry. Now, God's Spirit would fill all of God's people. And where in the days of old, God by his spirit would minister through a few to a nation, he now ministers by that same spirit through his entire church to the entire world. You see how big of a deal this is. You see the scope of the spirit's power. This had never happened before. Let me put it to you this way. Back in the 1950s, Egypt announced the construction of the Aswan High Dam. Incredible structure. Now, prior to the construction of the dam, the Nile River, where this dam still sits, gave life to the country families that lived just downstream. I mean, they depended on the power, the life-giving power of that river. They depended on it for food. They depended on it for their economy. They used it for all other aspects of their life. But when this dam was completed... And the, the Nile River flowed through those giant turbines. A power was released in a scope and in a capacity to light every city in Egypt. And so before the construction of this dam, only a few benefited from the life-giving power of the river. But after the dam was built and pushed through the power of those turbines, that same power in a greater scope and capacity than ever before, was available to the multitudes. This is what it means. This is the privilege and the responsibility of living on this side of Pentecost. Because on this side of Pentecost and on this side of Joel's prophecy, all of us, you, every one of us who names Christ as Lord, is equipped and filled with the abiding presence of God for the purpose of speaking the gospel. This means, stay-at-home mom, on Thursday afternoon, when you're running on caffeine and sugar only, even in that moment, 
you have been filled with enough of the Spirit's power to bring your little ones to maturity in Christ, to prayerfully speak the gospel to them. This means, senior saint, that you have been filled with enough of the Spirit's power that you don't have to give up on the ministry yet. You don't have to stop praying for that that grandchild that perhaps is away from the Lord that doesn't know Christ. God has equipped all of us, every one of us, by filling us with his abiding presence to be gospel speakers. Not just Pastor Chris, not just Pastor Nick, not just the elders or the Sunday school teachers. And while we don't have the time this morning to to plumb the depths of the gifts of the Spirit, if your gift set does not include the gift of the Spirit to prayerfully speak God's word and the gospel to other people, then you have missed it. You've missed the gift that has become available now for all of God's people, men, women, old, young, even servants. Even if you feel incredibly lowly, if you have named Christ as Lord and you are actively trusting in him to provide the salvation that you need, you have been filled with the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit brings the church to life. He does that by producing a radical change in us personally. He does that by filling us, indwelling us, abiding with us, fulfilling the promise of God. And there's a third evidence of the Spirit's power here at work in the life of the church. The Spirit also powerfully points us to Jesus. You know, one of the most clear and perhaps unsung ministries of the Spirit in and to the church is that he points us to Jesus. The Lord Jesus himself talked about this in John 16. He said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and he'll declare it to you. So I suppose it only makes sense that in his inaugural sermon in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit launches Peter into this long clear presentation, compelling presentation of the unquestionable lordship of Jesus. Let's look at part of it. Verse 22, he goes on to say, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter continues to support his argument by pointing to the clarity of Jesus in the scriptures. He cites both Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. He says of King David in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And then in verse 36, look down at it with me. Peter concludes with just this massive statement. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Old North, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit wants you to know this morning, he wants you to know for certain that Jesus really is Lord. He wants you to know that. And I love that this is not just wishful thinking. The lordship of Jesus is empirically supported by the fact that he really did come to the earth. He was a, he was a person. He lived a perfect life without sin. 
that he, he died a very real death on a very real cross as a substitute for us. And God did vindicate and validate all of his ministry by powerfully raising him for the dead. Friends, these are claims that no other religion or worldview can even attempt to make. This is not just wishful thinking. We can know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. I wonder if you know the first part of our vision statement as a congregation. The first part of our vision statement is to be a Christ-centered, multi-generational community of disciple-making disciples. Christ-centeredness leads the way. And I hope and pray you see the connection that's happening here in the book of Acts, that in being a Christ-centered church, we are by implication also a spirit-led and spirit-filled and spirit-empowered church. These two things, these two members of the Trinity are not at odds with one another. The Father and the Son gladly send the Spirit to equip and empower the church in this age. The Spirit longs to see the glories of Jesus understood and savored by his people. The Holy Spirit provides large injections of power to the church by giving us large doses of Jesus. Think about this means what this means when we actually meet together. So right now, in this room, when we come together to worship the Lord Jesus, that is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working powerfully among us. That well of affection that you feel rising up in your heart for the Lord Jesus as all the saints join in one song and say, in Christ the solid rock I stand. That is the Spirit's power at work among us, in and among us. When you are praying at home, all alone, and you conclude your prayer in Jesus' name, acknowledging that it is only because of the work, both past and present, of the Lord Jesus that you can speak to your Father in heaven, you are experiencing a work of the Spirit's power. As we come and proclaim God's word and you feel that sense of conviction in your heart that something is not right here. This is the work of the spirit in convicting the world of sin, of again molding and shaping believers into the image of Jesus. This is the work of the spirit played out today. It is his great power. So if you are longing to see the spirit powerfully work in your life and in the life of this church, you have got to keep looking to Jesus we have got to keep looking to Jesus. To this point in the sermon, we have seen the Spirit cause and bring about radical personal change. This is how he gives life to the church, by changing us, by fulfilling God's promise to abide in his people, to equip all of his people, and yes, to make much of Jesus, to point us to Jesus. A final way that we see the Spirit bringing life to the church is that he powerfully fuels the urgent ministry of the gospel. Gospel ministry is an urgent, spirit-driven endeavor. We see in verse 37, once Peter makes this great presentation of who the Lord Jesus really is, he calls for a response, doesn't he? Verse 37, check it out with me. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, what should we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Spirit, the gift you've seen given today. For the promise is for you and your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then with many other words, he bore witness. He continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here the Spirit is fueling, if you'll notice, both the proclamation of the gospel and the response to the gospel. And the way that he does that, what struck me as I studied this passage this week, is by Peter's urgent communication of the gospel message. This was an urgent matter for him. In verse 40, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, uses the word he exhorted them, a word that, that really means to earnestly encourage a response. In other words, Peter is pleading with these people, please, turn to Jesus today. The forgiveness of your sins is freely available. The full measure of the Spirit is available today in a way that it's never been available before. In the coming of the Spirit, this is the beginning of the last days. Don't wait. You've seen it happen. Call upon the Lord today. Now, I will be honest. I am the first one to admit that I do not like haphazard decisions for Jesus. I really think it's important for us to help people be thoughtful and thorough about understanding what the gospel is and understanding what it means to really become a Christian. I am not, I'm not one to encourage haphazard, knee-jerk decisions to become a Christian. However... It's also important, especially for for people like me in this regard, to not swing the pendulum so far to the other side that we forget about the urgency of the moment. These are the last days, certainly because there's all kind of goofy stuff happening in the world, but mostly because the Spirit has come. We have been living in the last days. I always come under great conviction whenever I read the old sermons of preachers like Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, these guys preached with urgency. I don't always preach this way. D.L. Moody said from one of his sermons, tomorrow may be too late. My friend, he said, this is your day now. I believe that every man has his day. You have it now. Why not call upon Christ? It's not too late now, but, Moody says, it might be at 12 o'clock tonight. Maybe you are here this morning and you have been doing your best to kind of keep Jesus at arm's length. You, you, you like being in control of your life and managing it on your terms and, you know, the, calling Jesus Lord. I mean, he's, he's a nice guy and this is all, you know, kind of fun and lovely and even culturally has some appeal to it this day. But, you know, I, he, he's not Lord can I just plead with you this morning in the same way that Peter did, the same way that Moody did? That is not a safe place for you to be. None of us know and none of us anticipate that our next breath will be our last. But none of us have that assurance. None of us really know. We can, however, have the assurance that even in death, we will not die. That we can have a share in the resurrection of Jesus, if we would bow our knee to him, if we would turn from trying to run our own life by our own terms and turn to Christ as Lord and place our faith in him and in his saving work, 
we can have assurance. And as we all remember the urgency of gospel ministry, and I pray are fueled by the Spirit to a different sense of urgency, remembering and resting in the fact that the Spirit is the one who drives the whole process forward. One of the founders of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, his name is A.J. Gordon, and he tells of a time when he saw a house in the distance across a vast field, and next to that house, he saw something that was, that was very intriguing to him. He saw a man uh, pumping one of those manual water well pumps, which doesn't sound all that extraordinary until he continued to watch, and he just noticed that this man was just furiously pumping this well, and he showed no signs of slowing, none whatsoever, just with steadiness and great consistent power. He was pumping and pumping. So Gordon thought, you know, I want to get a closer look. This, this sounds interesting to me. So Gordon approached the house, and as he approached the house, he realized that what he saw was not a man at all. It was actually a wooden figure who had been painted to look like a man. And that means that what Gordon saw that day was something called an artisan well. And in an artisan well, the man, the figure, does not pump the water. Rather, the water is pumping the man. As he reflected on this, Gordon went on to say, when you see a man who's at work for God and producing results, recognize that it's the Holy Spirit working through him, not his efforts giving results. All he has to do and all you have to do is keep your hand on the handle. It is the power of the Spirit that fuels gospel ministry. We must, we must give ourselves to the urgency of the work And we must be refreshed by the truth that we plant, we water, and it's God who provides the growth and the increase. The church comes to life by the power of the Spirit. We see this, we experience this as we submit to his power in changing us personally, radical change, by recognizing the abiding presence of the Spirit in us, given to prayerfully proclaim the word of the gospel, by getting our eyes onto Christ and also by remembering that the Spirit is the one who fuels the ministry of the gospel. This is how he breathes and sustains life into the church. John Stott nails it when he says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. What would it look like, I wonder, if every one of us in this room began to depend exclusively on the power of the spirit to breathe life and sustain life in our church? Not in our ministry programs, not in our excellent children's ministry, not in our great musicians or our beautiful facility, not in the accomplishments of our pastors, not even in our reputation in the community, all very important to be sure, but none that in themselves have the power to initiate and sustain life in this church. 
My friends, I pray that we would all make that commitment, the commitment to more than ever before rely and depend upon the power of the Spirit. With that, let me pray. Father, in casting our reliance and our dependence upon the Spirit and His power, we are in one sense saying we don't have the power. And that can be hard. So I pray that you help us with that. Help us to recognize that the only way that our church can come and remain alive is by the power of your Spirit. As he works to change radically, to change and to transform our lives as individuals, as he abides and fills and dwells within each and every one of us, as he equips us for the work of urgently proclaiming the gospel, and as he points us to Jesus, the one whom we call King and Savior and Lord. Help us to depend upon him and his power, perhaps more than we ever have before. We trust you for these in all things, in Christ's name. Amen.